You know, so often we complicate things when it comes to what the Lord has done for us. The song that you know, I mentioned the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to be looking at some of the old hymns and then going into Scripture. And this week, Hark the Herald Angels Sing was the song. And this song is some of the best theology you can get. You say you don't understand the Bible. Learn this song. Study this song. Go to the first stanza of this song, if you would, please. We still got it there? Is it up there? All right. I wanted, we're going to just read through these real quick. Think of what you are singing. Think of the truths. This song was written back in about 1692 by Charles Wesley, and he wrote it as a poem. He wrote it as a poem, and he'd been saved approximately one year when he wrote this poem. One night, one Christmas Eve, he was walking through the streets of London, England, and he heard the church bells of London, England sounding. And he stopped and he wrote a poem that he simply called, Hark, Behold. That was it. Charles Wesley and his brother pretty much started... Methodist denomination, Methodism, if you would. They weren't accepted by the Anglican Church of England for a couple of reasons. Some theology, but mostly methodology. Charles wrote over 6,000 hymns. Fanny Crosby, a woman, is the only one who has written more hymns than he wrote. His brother called the hymnal with his writing in it the best theology written in the day. Look at the theology as I read through these quite quickly. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory, the glory of God to this newborn king. He is a king. There's a king being born. Peace on earth, mercy mild. Why, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with the hell... The angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. The second stanza, a little different. It talks kind of about the mystery of the incarnation. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting, the eternal Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And this third stanza brings out the emphasis of some of what he did for us. It says, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lies his glory by, born that man no more to die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Born again is not a new concept. Charles wrote about it in the 1690s. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give a second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing. 
They were alienated from the Anglican Church because of their methodology. He wrote these songs for the poor, the commoners. The Anglican Church despised them for one of the reasons was they went out into the public and preached. They preached to the miners, the coal miners. They preached to the commoners, reaching out to them, wanting to teach them theology in song. The song has been added to and changed a little bit over the years. There was a time when a guy by the name of you music people will know, Felix Mendelssohn. You know what he did of the audacity of this man? He put it to secular music. They didn't like that much in the Anglican church. Secular music and its popularity soared. In 1971, the final changes were made to this song, the one that we sing over and over about a newborn king. Did you realize the theology you just sang about? What an opportunity to share the whole message in a song. We're going to be focusing on verse 14 of Luke chapter 2, looking at the Christmas story again. And we're going to look at verse 14 primarily, but we're going to kind of go through verses 8 through 18, maybe 20. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The title of my message this morning is Peace Even Possible. Is it even possible? The shepherds. Why do you think God came to the shepherds first? Why the shepherds? Wouldn't it have made much more sense to go to one of the schools of the rabbis and tell one of the esteemed rabbis of the day what was going to happen? Or maybe went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, see if you could get them on the right track by telling them about the Messiah that they've been waiting for is coming. Or maybe actually going right to the high priest. Why the shepherds? Why the shepherds? Why the pastures? around Bethlehem. Why would you go to the pastures? Why wouldn't you go to Jerusalem? Why wouldn't you go to the temple? That'd be a great place for the Messiah to be born, the temple, the focal point of their religion. Or at least find a castle somewhere for the Prince of Peace to be born. I want to offer up as a thought from my perspective, maybe it was simply because of who Jesus was going to be and who the shepherds were. They were nobodies. In that culture in that day, shepherds were not looked upon very kindly. They wanted, there, was a, there was a saying that went something like this. If you're downwind, you'll know there's a shepherd within 100 feet. They smelled they would be out with the sheep for weeks, weeks on end. They had a bad reputation. They say they had a hard time remembering what was mine versus thine. As a matter of fact, in the early culture, they were not allowed to testify in court because what they had to say was not trusted. 
Why would he go to these nobodies when he could have went anywhere else? Maybe one of the reasons was simply because of who they were. That Jesus was coming for the nobodies. He wasn't coming for just the esteemed, the powerful, the prestigious, the rich, the highly educated. He wasn't coming for all of those. Demonstrating maybe, maybe that the message of Christmas is for everybody, not for an elite few. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, uh, 20, 27 and 8, I think, will be on the screen. I'm going to start at 26. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Sisters, think about what you were when God got a hold of you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I don't know about you, but I'm one of the foolish things of the world. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world. Verse 29 says, He did this so that no one could boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness. God put on flesh and came to earth in the form of his son to die on a cross for us, the lowliest, for everybody. No matter who we were, matter of fact, no matter who we sometimes still are, he came for us. Why else might he have went to the shepherds? Well, certainly there are some things about prophecy in the word of God. Why Bethlehem? Again, there's prophecy in the word of God where the Messiah was going to be born. It certainly could have been their profession. By choosing the shepherds, God the Father knew Jesus was going to be a shepherd of his people. He knew he was going to be a shepherd of his sheep. But he also knew that his son was going to be a sheep. A shepherd that was also a sheep. The Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. He would be that sheep. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, familiar verse probably to most of us. He was opposed, oppressed, and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Not as a sheep before his shearers, and as a sheep before his shearers, he was silent. And he didn't even open his mouth and make excuse. He didn't defend himself. The prophet Isaiah wrote those years, words hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And then there is a story that I'm not going to go into in much deep depth. I usually share this sometime during Christmas. I believe there's definitely scripture to support it, but we really don't know the answer of exactly where Jesus was born. But the Jewish religious law had some things about those sacrificial sheep written in their law. One, they had to be born and raised within a five-mile radius of Jerusalem. And they had to be lambs without spot or blemish. There were sheep, thousands of sheep raised in the vicinity of Jerusalem because it took thousands of sheep to be sacrificed at the morning sacrifice, at the evening sacrifice, Passover, 
Thousands of sheep were killed. Their blood collected, sprinkled on the altar, part of their religious ceremony to cover the sin of the nation of Israel. These special sheep had to be spotless, without spot or blemish. And in the history of the Old Testament, there's a particular place outside of Bethlehem in the, in the area around Bethlehem that it's referred to in the prophetic books, Micah. It's talked about even way back with Rebecca and Rachel, I mean, with Rachel. It'll tell you there that Rachel in the history of the Jewish people died as they were moving, traveling to Benjamin. She died along the way in childbirth. Benjamin, and she was buried at a place called Migdal Adair. That means the tower of the flock. There were towers built out where these shepherds would raise the sheep. Towers that could, they could climb up in the tower and see a little bit greater distance if anything was coming to harm the sheep. And there would be, the base of it was often a cave or a dugout, and it would be where they would bring the ewes in when they are ready to give birth. And some tradition says that they were the temple sheep, had to be spotless without blemish. So when they were born, each lamb, they would be cleaned up and wrapped in swaddling cloths so that they couldn't thrash around and kick and hurt themselves so they would be blemished at Magdal Adair. David was crowned king in the area of Bethlehem. Ruth and Boaz collected grain in the fields around Bethlehem. There is a history of Bethlehem that is tied to God's chosen people going back centuries. And some would say, and I'm probably of this opinion, that Jesus may have been born at Magdal Adair, at the Tower of the Flock, outside of Bethlehem, where the sacrificial lambs were born and wrapped in swaddling cloths to keep them safe. Maybe there was a little baby born in a manger and wrapped in swaddling cloths who would become the sheep, the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed one time for all time for all sin. In Micah, there's some prophecy. I'm just not going to go there. I love to talk about it. But I think you can support this as well as any other position as to where Jesus may have been born. But the reality is what matters is he was born. And he's God in the flesh. When God had Jesus born in Bethlehem, he may have been saying something like, to be born in Bethlehem like a sheep who's going to be sacrificed. A sheep that will be sacrificed once and for all to end all the slaughter of the temple sheep for history. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, that he did not enter the temple by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for all who receive him. It's only the shed blood of Christ that provides for forgiveness of sins. There is no other way. The world, other religions, would like to tell us there's many ways. They would like to tell us we all worship the same God. 
No, we worship the God of Israel, the God who came in the flesh in Jesus. And there's no other way except the shed blood of Jesus. There's no other way that a man can be saved lest we accept what Christ did for us on the cross personally. He did that for me, Mike, buried in my sin, condemned to hell for eternity. He initiated the process and he sent the child 2,000 years ago and he came to earth to die for me. It's personal for every one of us that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the shepherd in the hills around Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, were sitting around one evening doing whatever shepherds did in the evening. In my mind, they're sitting around a campfire waiting to take turns to watch the sheep. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And notice it's an angel first that shows up. Personally, I believe that angel was probably Gabriel because he kind of brought a message similar to the one Gabriel had been bringing to a few other people. And some of the very first words he said were, do not be afraid. He spoke those same words to Zacharias when the Lord spoke to him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child in their old, 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 old age, and it turned out to be John the Baptist. Do not be afraid. He came to Mary, walked in, whatever he did, and there's Mary, and she's like, and he goes, do not be afraid. And then he tells her why. Joseph doesn't know what to do. The the girl he's supposed to marry is pregnant. He's trying to decide what to do with her. He's a good man. He doesn't want to put her away. He doesn't want to stone her. He doesn't want to embarrass her. And an angel of the Lord... Gabriel shows up and says, don't be afraid, Joseph, for Mary is carrying the Messiah. Why not fear? Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Man, is that a message we need today? In this nation and around the world, do not fear. What have we got to fear? Everything? Nothing. Why not fear? Because of the message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation. For those that may not be familiar with their incarnation is God simply putting on flesh, becoming human like us so he could redeem us. Jesus died for us, humans. You may have never thought of this, but this is kind of how weird my mind is sometimes. How about those angels that fell with Satan? Could they be redeemed? Could they repent? Not according to this. He didn't become an angel. He became a human. He died to redeem humans. He died to redeem you and me. I'm going to take just a little rabbit trail to talk about something I hardly ever talk about. Alan, this is just for you. I'm going to talk a little bit about angels. First of all, They're not part of a fairy tale. They're real. They exist. God created them. They are created. They are independent, created beings, created by God. I don't know exactly when they were created, but I know they were created a long time ago. Because in Scripture, listen listen to what it says in Job chapter 38. Where were you? And he's speaking to Job now. He's going to straighten out Job a little bit. And he says, where were you? 
when I laid the earth's foundations. Where were you when I created the earth? Verse 7, while the morning stars sang together and the angels were shouting for joy. These angels were there at creation. When exactly and how long before that, I have no idea, but they were there for creation. The angels witnessed the glory and the power of God when he spoke and things came into being. I bet they were a little impressed by that. And why did he create them? He created them to do God's will. He, took, he created them to do God's will. The word angel itself means messenger or agent. He created them to do the will of God. There are scriptures for us in Psalms 103, verse 20. It says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding and obey his word. Praise the Lord, all you heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. You know, angels are largely unseen in our world today, the world we live in. And I believe that most of their work is still largely unseen. But I believe they're working. God has them working. Not just as messengers, but doing whatever his will is. It says he go, do my will. Now, I know many of us are excited about guardian angels. My mother loves those little guardian angel things you get by. I'm not sure they give us the right picture. And I don't know if they're called guardian angels. But look at this scripture in regard to the angels. Psalm 91, 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. I kind of think when we get to heaven and discover what those angels were doing, for you and for me, what they were doing to guard us, to protect us physically, morally, spiritually. I have no idea how much, but I believe they were given that task. Angels have an important role to play. But one of the things that amazes me so much is the scripture says we are created above the angels. God, God looks at the angels. I'm sure he loves his creation, but he looks at you and me and goes, there they are, the apple of my eye. And you know what's amazing about the angels? They're cheering on what God does for you and me. They're cheering him on for what he does for us. He cheers them on because of our salvation. They're here going to be cheering at the announcement to the shepherds. They are excited about what God is doing. Okay, my little rabbit trail, back on track. With all the angels had witnessed, from the foundations of the world, who knows how long before, till this point, it's no wonder God chose the angels. It's no wonder that they came. Reality is, and this is Mike talking, I don't understand the incarnation all that well. God, who spoke, and everything that exists came into being, and now he's a baby? Wow. 
But I do believe this. The angels probably understand the incarnation better than any of us. Because they have seen this history playing out for centuries. No wonder they're in the fields and Jesus let them come. When it says multitudes of heavenly hosts, I, I, boy, wouldn't you love to have seen that choir? I wonder how many multitudes is. It's a lot. Now, were they singing? I don't know because the Bible doesn't tell me that. But I know they were proclaiming and they were saying. Maybe they were the first rappers. I don't know. No, that might have been blasphemy there. <clears throat> And the message that he gave the shepherds, first and foremost, was don't be afraid. God, we need to grab that message today, church. Don't be afraid. There's all kinds of chaos out in the world around us. And we're letting that fear lead us, direct us, influence our decision-making, our thinking. Fear. Do not fear. Why not? Because God saved me. And he promises he will watch over me. And he says in a familiar verse in Romans 8, 28, And you know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I don't understand how some things that happen to me or you can possibly be used by God for good, but they happens all the time. I see it afterwards when I look back, but at the time in the present or even looking forward, man, I have to battle fear. God says, fear not. Fear not. If you're my child, you have nothing, nothing to fear. And the rest of the angels show up. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And suddenly, I really need to back up and read what the angel told the shepherds. An angel of the Lord, I'm in verse 9 now, and you won't have this back there, Natalie or whoever's there. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in the manger. Verse 13. Suddenly there appeared with the angels, the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, peace, peace among whom he is well pleased. First thing I want to say, and then I'm going to go on from this, is notice this peace is not available to everybody. Peace with those whom he is well pleased. Peace for his church, for his children, his kids. Peace. For, is it any wonder the world that they don't know Jesus? They are terrified and living in fear continually about just about everything. They need Jesus. That's what they need. The song of the incarnation, Luke 2, 13 and 14. God became one of us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Every, even in the heavens, even in the heavens, the angels are declaring glory to God in the highest. The angels are blessed by what God is doing for us. Glory to God. And on earth, peace among men 
with whom he is well pleased. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's who he is. There's peace available to all that know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But where's the peace? Peace. Peace on earth. Look around. Where's the peace? What is going on? Everywhere we look, we see strife. We see division. We see rumors of war and we see war. We see all of this animosity, this lack of peace between families, between neighbors, between communities, between nations. Where is the peace? Is peace even possible? He's the Prince of Peace. There's a peace available to all with whom he is well pleased. There's a peace available to all who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is a peace. The world is at war with God. We just got to remember that. The, the world is at war with God. There is enmity with God and with other believers. It's all around us. And those that don't know Christ should not be in his church. Nations against nations. How did he provide peace? Through what we call the atonement. He paid that price. He atoned for our sins. He shed his blood, was crucified, died, buried, rose again. Peace for all who receive him as their Lord and Savior. God reconciled us to himself and gives us peace. And if this peace that's in our hearts was a universal thing, if the peace within each of us would be allowed to bring a universal love and acceptance for everybody around us, brothers and sisters and non-believers alike, we would get rid of all so much of the animosity, so much of the jealousy, the envy, the lust, all of these things. And if that peace became universal, nation and nation and nation, there would be no more war. But as we all know, that isn't going to happen for a while. We don't know when. Maybe sooner than we think. That kind of peace will come when Jesus returns and he rules on this earth for a thousand years. We call it the millennium. Well, he will rule and there will be peace. But until that day. And the thing that we, we need to continually be reminded of is God did all this by him taking the initiative. You know, he took the initiative he rescued Mike not because he looked down and said, boy, Mike needs rescuing, which he could have said. But he didn't say he deserves it. He took the initiative while we were yet sinners, bound by sin, condemned to hell. By his own initiative, he, he came with this amazing plan of salvation, demonstrating his wisdom, his love, his power, his glory, all in this thing we call the incarnation, the thing we celebrate at Christmas. God made peace possible 
It's one of the reasons it's so important that we understand the gospel, what it all means, get an understanding of it. When we sing the song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, had you ever noticed how theologically powerful it was? We sang joy to the world, theologically powerful. We need to know and understand. Because until we understand, not only will we miss the benefits, many will miss salvation altogether. Many who we have a desire to share with won't understand if we don't understand. I want to close with a short story, and it's a true story. In 1962, Don and Carol Richardson, with their 10-month, I believe he was a 10-month-old son, went to the middle of the jungles. They went to a place called Irian Jaya in Papua, what we call now New Guinea. And they went to a tribe of people called the Sawi, S-A-W-I, the Sawi people. And this tribe of people were violent. The tribe was living in different villages, be a village, another village, another village, but they were all of the Sawi tribe, but they were continually fighting with one another. They were at war with one another. They would kill one another. And to make it even worse and more ugly and evil, they were headhunters and cannibals. And the most admired virtue among the Sawe people was treachery. Treachery. You wanted to be raised in esteem in the Sawe village? You might go and try to make friends with somebody from a neighboring village with one goal in mind, get him to trust you, get him to believe you, and then you kill him. And then you cook him. And you eat him. Seriously. That was the highest virtue among these people. The Richardsons were accepted there, even though they were white, because of a number of things. One, they brought some steel equipment like an axe or hammers. And they also were impressed by what they called the motorized canoe, a boat with a motor. And then Carol was an RN. She was trained medically. So she would be able to try to treat and help some of the sick, some of those wounded and hurt in the wars that continued. So they were accepted. And they were not only accepted in this village, other villages also accepted them. Don, especially Don, but Don and Carol learned the language. They spent time learning the language. And finally, Don got to the place where he could actually share the gospel. He felt he knew the language well enough. So he brought a number of the men into the hut, one of the huts, and they sat down on the floor of the hut. And he tells them the gospel message. And they listened politely because they did respect Don. But there was no reaction until he got to the point in the story when Judas betrayed Jesus. And then they got excited and started cheering because Judas was the hero of the story because of the ultimate act of treachery. True story. 
Don and Carol started praying, Lord, we got to figure out how to reach these people. You got to show us something. We can't reach these people. And at that time, battles started breaking out with a couple of the villages, one in particular where they were warring back and forth, killing each other, wounding each other, and it was going on and on. And finally, Don and, and his wife decided, we have to leave. Not only is it dangerous for us, but we might be causing this warfare that won't stop. So they called the leader of their village and told him, we're going to leave because of the warring that's going on. And he talked to the leader of the other village, and he told Don, he says, you can't go. We will make peace. Don's like, how are you going to make peace? Tomorrow, we will make peace. Don and Carol that night are like, what is going to happen? They don't trust each other. Treachery is the most important thing to them. How are they going to come together and make peace? Well, the next morning they woke up. And here's warriors from both of the, tri- both of the villages. And they're in a line facing one another. And here, over here, sitting, kneeling and weeping, is the leader of the village they're living in with her newborn baby boy. And the father walks over and takes the baby boy, and the woman is wailing and screaming, and he walks over to the leader of the other village and hands him the child. And the leader of that village gets another little baby from their village and goes over and hands it to the leader of the village, Don and Carol Livehead. And then they took the baby and they walked down the line of warriors and the whole tribe and each village had to lay hands on the child. And this child was called the peace child. As long as that child was alive, there would be peace. Don and Carol were dumbfounded. Could this possibly be the way God answers our prayers? Could this possibly be the way that we're going to be able to explain the gospel message to these people? And sure enough, they started sharing about the peace child that God sent to earth to bring peace between God and sinners. Only his peace is eternal. Many in the village were saved. The surrounding village, the warring village, five villages in the area were saved. They all came together and built a humongous church out of bamboo and leaves. They baptized many people because of the peace child. God says, I'm giving you my son. He's my peace child. Many people today doubt God's love or care for them because life is tough. Life is harsh. It's hard. When things are happening we don't understand or when things don't turn out the way we're praying and believing for, it's hard. A lot of times people come to this place to ask that question, where is God when I truly need him? The reality is when we truly needed him, he met the need through the peace child, Jesus. He met the greatest need of yours and mine, of all mankind. 
And that's the only place we can find peace. Through the Prince of Peace. Closing with verses 17 and 18 of Luke chapter 2. The response of the shepherds. And when they had seen this, meaning they went and saw the child, they made known the statements which had been told about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. We should be even more in awe of who Jesus is in the Incarnation. We should be even more excited and more burdened to share the good news about the peace child. We should be anxious and excited to be able to tell others about what Jesus has done in our lives, your life and mine. If we're not excited, we need to get back to that place, humble ourselves before God, remember where we came from. And some of us in this room are probably never truly personally accepted Jesus as your personal peace child. You might go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. You maybe pick up the Bible once in a while. You maybe grew up church, but you never truly understood the message of Christmas. It is about the gift, the greatest gift, Jesus. Nothing wrong with the other gifts unless we forget about the real gift. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's overwhelming to know and understand how much you love us how much you love each one of us. No matter where we came from, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're at, you love us. And you decided in your perfect plan to send Jesus as God in the flesh to become one of us, to live a sinless life. And even though you sent him, knowing full well that we would kill him. You sent him anyway. Part of your plan to demonstrate just how much you love us. God, I pray that that truth settles deeper and deeper into our hearts, into our spirits as we contemplate Christmas. And Father, I pray that you would give each and every one of us those opportunities to share that good news about the peace child. That there is peace available to all because of Christ, your Son, God in the flesh. Pray, Lord, you would watch over us, keep us safe, protect us as we travel on these roads, protect all that would traveling on these roads. Surprise. (laughs) May we truly be so overwhelmed with thanksgiving that we can't keep the truth contained in our own hearts but are moved to share it. In Jesus' name.